Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm the lead teaching pastor here. And before we get started, I wanted to introduce a work. Um, if you've been coming, we've been basically announcing and talking about something that God is doing in what we call Center City. And Center City for us is a two and a half mile radius away from where we are moving to. All right. So it's about 19 and a half square miles representing a couple dozen neighborhoods. And each week we're taking something that we believe God is doing, whether it be a family, a block, a ministry, a church, um, and we're praying over it as a church. Because as we pray for things, our heart follows after it, and we want God to start giving us vision and an excitement for a part of town, not a building, but a part of town. Um, now, you might remember a week or two ago, I brought up Tabernacle Baptist Church. Um, which is a great church there in that Five Points area, and they have a unique outreach in what we, we think is the Magnolia Warehouse District because of where it's situated, but it's in a very key place, and it's doing something very beautiful for the city. Clint up here is very key and integral in how this house is coming about, and so I'd love for him to just talk for a couple minutes and then lead us in prayer on it. Go ahead. It's live. Just, no, it's up. You just got to put it closer. Yeah. There you go. Buddy. Right now, uh, Father God, what a great position you are. You've got this problem. You have, you are the 
thing that we'll be faithful to you. That you can, that is where we can be. We talked about the love of, of, of the city, the love of you. You planted right where the water is. Mm -hmm. The water is right there. Mm -hmm. And the boys are going to come up. You're going to block it up now. So women and children, they get blocked. They're blocking. And uh, they need you. We all need you. And we just pray for you. You plan this there. And uh, uh, we just, uh, we want to, as you say, we, you, you, your prayers and uh, praise you have grown those, you love them, you become part of them. So we, we lift those, those uh, women and children up right now that are, that are there to minister to you. And we lift up um, Chris and Coleman, who are the uh, pastors there at that church, who are in partnership with. And uh, they're already beginning to fundraise. They're excited about that because you are the living hope uh, that we have, the living mm -hmm. hope in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Good job, Clint. Thank you. Cool boots, too. I like those boots. Hey, if you have any questions about that work, be sure to talk to Clint before you leave today, and he'll be able to fill in any gaps you have. Um, but turn in your Bibles to Acts 27, and we're going to jump into the text today. Acts 27. You know, there have been two times in my life where I honestly, I honestly thought I was about to die. Um, interestingly enough, both of them involved water. <laughs> But I thought, I, I really thought I was facing death. The first time this happened, I'm not telling you both, but the first time this happened was in 2007. I was doing um, my very first of what would be called a long course triathlon, which means the distances are kind of skewed. They're not normal ones that you'd find in a, in a normal race in a normal place. But the swim was a very far swim. And I'm not a bad swimmer, but I'm a nervous swimmer, if that makes any sense to some of you, you know. And this swim was going to be in the open water, the open ocean water. It's in Sarasota, Florida, so it's kind of a bathtub of water right there in the Tampa Bay area where all kinds of weird, wicked things are swimming around and you can't see them. So for a nervous swimmer, that's obviously a problem. There's weird fish and dolphins and stuff that will touch you when you're swimming, and I'm not super into that. And when I'm getting ready for this race and putting my stuff together, I could hear the race directors talking about how they're considering shutting down the, the swim portion because there was a big storm rolling in. And you could see the storm rolling in. And you could actually see the swells getting bigger out there because we're going to have to swim almost out into the shipping lanes and back. We're going to be out there forever, you know. And so the chop is getting nasty, and it just looks gross. Um, but they decide, hey, a bunch of athletes, we want to give them their money's worth. We're going to keep the swim. So gun goes off, hundreds of athletes pile into the water. 20, 25 minutes later, my head comes up, and I am totally alone. I don't see any other swimmers. I can't see the big buoys that you're supposed to swim out to, which are the size of minivans, and they're like yellow. I mean, you shouldn't be able to miss them. I can't see them. Here's the thing. I can't even see land. I am totally lost, and then it starts to rain, right? I know. See, stuff's touching me down there, too, you know? And so I'm panicking. So I'm, I'm, I'm treading water. I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can swim for a, a, as long as I need to. I can do this. But I'm panicking inside. My heart rate's just going up. I know it is. Um, I'm trying to time the swells a little bit to where I could kind of look around as fast as I can while I'm at the top. And then you're way down in the bottom. And I'm freaking out. And I'm wondering, is this it? I mean, is this it? I have a yellow swim cap on and way too much sunblock, and this is how they're going to find me, <laughs> you know? 
This is my dramatic ending. I've got kids for crying out loud. What am I even doing out here? And you start wondering, why is God doing this to me? I mean, are you kidding me? This is happening right now. I paid money to do this, and look at me. So I'm panicking, and I'm starting to get frustrated, and I'm mad, and all of a sudden, something comes out of the water right next to my head. (laughs) And it was a guy who had a black swim cap on. He was in a heat, like, way behind me. And he came up, and he looked as panicked as I did. He said, hey, do you know where we're at? I said, no, but we shouldn't be here. I know that, you know. And so we're commiserating, and by teamwork and just sheer desperation, we could see land for a moment, which meant that we just needed to look to find the buoys. We were closer to the buoys, so we went ahead and circled them and went back, and the whole thing was over, right? But I honestly thought I was going to die. Now, here's the thing. It's a funny story. But I do think, in a not-so-funny way, many of us walked in here today floating along in a storm of sorts, probably feeling a little bit alone, without guidance, without any resolution. Hope is starting to leak, and now it's raining on you, correct? And you're wondering when it's going to end. You might be wondering how it's all going to look when it's all said and done. No help, no one to even talk to. Why is God doing this? Does God do things like this? Bunch of questions. And listen, even if you're not in a storm right now, you know yourself that's not the the normal. That's an exception. Because ever since mankind broke in half and sin and death comes rushing into the picture, nothing works like it should. So storms come all the time, left and right, many storms at once. And they don't always roll out as fast as they roll in. This is the problem with storms. So as we look at this series that we've been in for over 30 weeks now, we've been looking at the book of Acts and a series we call Jesus' People, we look that we are called to extend the gospel to a city, to a broken people, and their normal is the storm. That's just what they wake up to every day. I mean, the punchline for us is we get Jesus. It it refocuses what our storm looks like. But if you don't have Jesus, storm is just reality for you. But if we're called as God's people to extend the gospel and to lead them, how do we do that when we're floating around in our own storms? Right? How do you do that? I was ill-equipped to lead this other swimmer back to shore because I was more lost than he was. How am I supposed to do that? How are we supposed to do that? I think this passage today is going to be very helpful to us. I love it. We're going to talk about Paul's shipwreck today. And I think it's got valuable information for you and me and how we are supposed to handle storms and those around us in the very same storms we're in. Now, these shipwrecks, I mean, shipwrecks were were not uncommon back then. They happened quite often, to be honest with you. But it's widely agreed with scholars and with historians that maybe not even be Christians, right? I mean, just, just various historians that this passage today is one of the most detailed and helpful passages when it comes to how a ship works and how a ship wrecks. I mean, scholars from all over use this passage because of its incredible detail and description. And I'm not a sailor, obviously. You know, I'm not salt of the world, or what do they call salt of the ocean or something? It's salt of something. I'm not it, right? I'm treading water guy <laughs> with the swim cap guy. 
So, but even as I read this and I'm learning about how ships work, just like the other historians and, and scholars, I find great value in it beyond its description of sailing because Luke, the author of this, reveals a glimpse of how God engages us and pursues us and holds us in our storms. Not only that, but how we can be missional at the exact same time. So let's just jump in and read. It's a very cool passage. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a device or a Bible with you. But this is the word of the Lord for us today. Acts 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail from Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. Hey, that, what that means right there, by the way, because you'll see it a few other times, under the lee, it just means sailing on a side of the island that gives you harbor from winds. It's the safer part of an island, kind of like a shield, all right? So under the lee. Because the winds were against us, verse 5, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia, verse 6, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. What that means when it says a ship from, it's, it's a ship coming from Alexandria. These were ships going between Egypt and Italy, and we're going to find out later on it was a grain ship. There was a heavy grain route between Egypt in Italy, right? Now, these ships were pretty good size. This was about 180 to 200 foot long ship with about 50 foot wide, all right? And it could hold, it could hold quite a few people. It was a big boat. It would fit firmly inside of a football field, okay? Um, back then, passenger travel isn't like what it would be today. If you wanted to go from A to B and you wanted to do it by water or quickly, you'd have to find boats that were carrying things. Like, hey, we're going here. Um, we're carrying, you know, LCD TVs. So you jump on that ship, and it'd skirt you around, and you'd have to jump off of that one and get on the, the, the boat carrying jet skis, and then that's going to take you across, and that's just how you got from A to B. That's what's going on right here. The thing about these grain ships, though, not good, not good when it comes to stormy waters. They're barely good. They're tolerable just in the open sea on a good day, right? It's important to know. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salome, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Pause. This is what's going on right here. The captain of the ship, right, the pilot, the captain of the ship waited for a while for the weather to get better, and he just waited too long. He just, 
he overplayed his hand a little bit. So what you have is you have the fast being mentioned here. The fast is just the Day of Atonement. It's a Feast of Atonement. And it always fell firmly in the late fall, which was a very bad time to be in a boat on the open ocean, especially the Mediterranean. Just a bad time, right? That's why that's in there. It's a little bit of a detail for us. So Paul chirps up. And why not? Because he's the only guy that doesn't belong in that conversation. You have the pilot, the owner, and the centurion, and then Paul. And Paul's just a he's, a, he's a prisoner. He's a slave prisoner, and he's just there hanging out. And so they're trying to decide what they're going to do, and he chirps up and says, hey, I think this whole thing's a bad idea. Now, this is the deal. He'd already been in two shipwrecks. This will be his third. You can get that in 2 Corinthians when you read, and he's talking to the people, the church of Corinth. He says, I've been shipwrecked three times. Right? Now, you heard me say these things happen a lot. Lots of people don't survive them, though. In fact, one guy, Ernst Hanschen, who is a German scholar, he added up all of the sea voyages that Paul ever took in the book of Acts and did the sum total up to over 3,000 miles on the open ocean. So I did the math. If you got into a car here at West High School, you could drive to the southern, drive to the southern border of Costa Rica in that amount of time. That's a lot of experience. He's got a lot of experience when it comes to wrecking ships. He has an honorary degree in sailing and in wrecking ships, right? So he gets a vote here, but he doesn't really. You know, it's funny. It's funny how others see some of the storms in our life before we do, isn't it? You ever get that advice that you're headed for a rocky coastline and you kind of blow it off, right? I've profited well by others telling me I'm making massive mistakes and about to be in a jam. I've done well by that. This is my community plug, by the way. It's my shameless community plug because no one's going to speak those things to you unless you're known and deeply known, right? It's good for you, profitable for you, for other people to speak into your life. And a lot of times, they look like they don't belong in your conversation, just like in this. I could just see Paul going, and start to talk, and then everyone else looking at him like, why are you even in this conversation? (laughs) Pilot, owner, centurion, no, you shouldn't be here, right? But that's how it feels when people speak into our lives a lot of times. You don't belong in my life. You're a nobody. You don't even understand what's going on. Community is valuable. A different sermon. Verse 13, let's just go on. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Okay, if I could just pause for a minute. That word tempestuous has a Greek meaning behind it that means more to us than it, than it probably does in some cultures. That's where we get the word typhoon. It was a typhonic wind or a hurricane-level wind. So 100 miles per hour wind plus or minus 10 miles per hour, right? I've been in one tornado and I've been in two hurricanes that had approximate wind, wind speed, right? Listen, it's, there's animals blowing around. There's trees flopping all over the place. Not even safe to be in a vehicle, a one-ton, two-ton vehicle driving around in that weather, right? Don't think for a minute you would be in this ship walking around. Remember, you're on a boat in the stupid ocean, right? So you're not walking around with an oar in a hand and some ropes over your shoulder doing what sailors do. 
you are white knuckling whatever is nailed down. It's a hundred mile per hour wind. It's a hurricane level wind. And it says it's rushing down from the land. If you look at a map, where this is being caught is right on that edge of Crete where the cliffs go straight into the water and they are 7,000 foot high. 7,000 foot. That's pretty high. You're at sea level. You're looking up over a mile to the top of these peaks. It's intimidating. I've been doing a lot of reading the last year or two on Crete, the island, oddly enough, and how it played a role in World War II and World War I. But one of the interesting things about Crete is you do deep history on it. It's just basically the birthplace of mythology. Zeus, Poseidon. These characters were birthed out of these scenes of a 7,000-foot cliff plunging into an angry ocean, right? It's been intimidating. It's not just that wind came out of nowhere. You grew up as a sailor hearing about these dangerous oceans and about the gods. And a tempestuous, typhonic wind comes and throws your life into disorder right there on the spot. It's intimidating. It's freaky. They can't do anything about it, so all they do is they give way, it says, and they are driven along, trusting the wind, trusting the open sea, in a boat that's not even meant for that kind of weather. So knuckles are getting white. Have you been there? I've been there. This is what it feels like to me to get sidewiped by a storm, ambushed by a storm. This is what it feels like for me to be intimidated, surprised, overwhelmed, where the immediate response that you have is not to walk around and be confident or at peace, but it is to just bear hug anything that is not moving. Whatever looks like you can trust it for your safety, you hug it and you hold it as hard as you can. But be careful, because some of the things you grab with white knuckles, they sink after a while, which is what we're going to see here today. Because as bad as this gets, I mean, we have 276 people approximately on this boat. It's a lot. You have 276 really bad days, and it's just getting worse. It's about to get much worse because this storm is not going to lift. Let's look at verse 16. Verse 16. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. I think it's important just to talk about what's going on right here because there's a progression you're going to see. They're going to get more and more aggressive with their evasive maneuvers to get into, I guess, a peaceful place and out of the storm. This is the first one they do. When it says they, they hoist up the ship's boat, that is the lifeboat. They're dragging it behind. It's not like you see today where the lifeboats are kind of hanging off the side of the boat and stuff with covers on them and everything. This was basically a, a large rowboat or something like that that was being towed behind the stern of the ship. And it would fill with water during a storm. And it would basically make it hard for the ship to navigate and get any kind of speed. So they hoist it up, dump it out, tie it down, and then they drop ropes under the ship, right? And then when it comes back around, all the way around, they kind of ratchet it. They, they put a bind on the rope so it holds the ship together with much more strength, like duct taping a boat, basically. Because it's not going to fall apart, but they need to make sure that it can handle this water and speed of the winds and everything. So then if you go on, it says, then, next sentence, then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, which is a graveyard for ships, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 
lowered the gear, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading or what translation, it might fill in the blanks for you there. It could mean one of two things, and it doesn't really matter which one it means, right? One could mean it just lowers the sails, the main sail and the guiding sail up in the front. It could mean they just lowered that and were driven along, so it didn't ruin their sails. Or it could mean that they took a lot of their ship's material and they threw it behind the stern of the ship like a sea anchor, and it could be lowering the gear that way. Either way, they're getting more antsy. They're having to take more steps. That's what we see. Let's read on, verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Okay, pause, very next day. Now what are they doing? They're taking grain and they're throwing it in the ocean. They're taking the, the three cars and they're throwing it in the ocean and the cattle and the TVs and the jet skis and they're, taking, they're just dumping it all because that level of ballast is throwing everything off. Verse 19, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, we're, now we are desperate. We're grabbing vital pieces of the ship, which might possibly come in handy later on, with our bare hands, and we're just hucking it over the side. It's the very definition of scuttling the boat. That's what we see. I think Luke does a great job here of showing us that these seasoned sailors are reaching deep into their playbook, and they're doing whatever they can, and they are running out of options still. They're running out of options. I think we get like this when I'm in a storm. I get like this. I get pressed and pressed and pressed until I run out of options, methodically trying to solve my storm, getting more desperate as time goes on, trying new things, then trying new things on top of things, then trying new things on top of those on top of those, doing anything I can to get out of the storm as fast as possible. I'm out of options. I think that's what storms do. I think that's where they become useful for us as they press us out of options. They put us in a place where there's nothing left. God's mercy. No innovation left. It sounds like a horrible place to be. We're going to find out it's a very good place to be. As bad as this whole thing is going, it's about to get even worse. Verse 20. And neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. We will later find out 14 days, two weeks of this. Can you believe that? Two weeks of, two weeks of this drive you crazy. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. No release, no guidance because they had no sun or stars to guide them anymore. They don't even know where they're at. No rest, no food, no answers, no miracles, no anything like that. But I'll tell you what they do have. They have hope that is leaking. They're abandoning hope right now. And I would say to you, even this morning, try to put yourself in their shoes, but I know already most of you already are. You already are in their shoes. No hope. I mean abandoning hope. Let me just remind you again, those who are far from Jesus, who don't have a hope, a hope in their life. This is their normal life. Verse 20 right there. No small tempest, no guidance, no rest, no food, no answers, and no hope. That's what we have. You know, all you have is your own two hands and your own brilliance. Listen, with your own two hands, you can only throw so much tackle and weed overboard. And then you're just out of innovation and you're out of answers. I did the math, and statistically, the time that you've been sitting in this seat, 
to the time that you get up from your seat, nine people in America would have committed suicide today. Nine people. And about three dozen more before you go to bed. Right? These are people that are finding themselves in a storm, pressed out of options, no innovation left, no hope. No hope. Storms can get bad, can't they? I mean, they can get gnarly. You listen to your friends talk about storms. Isn't there a piece of you that thinks, I don't know what I would do if I was in their shoes? Their head guy's really got it bad. Storms can get bad. I think some of you are finding yourself and those around you in places that you're leaking hope, and it's dark, and you're alone, and you're scared, and you don't know when it's going to stop. Paul, at this point in the story we're about to read, he's going to step up a little bit. The prisoner kind of becomes the captain, right? He's the only man with courage left. Of course, that's because he's taking his courage from a different place, we all know. I think that Paul's role in the latter part of this chapter is really our role in this city. It's really going to be our role in Knoxville, our role in our families. So I want you to pay very close attention to what he says because he is in the very same storm they are. He's not in a bubble. He's not slept. You're not sleeping on a boat like that. You know what I'm saying? You're not eating and hanging out. He's in the same storm. Pay close attention. Verse 21, since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Okay, that might sound like Paul is saying, I told you so, but that's because he's saying, I told you so. That's Paul saying, I told you so right there. You know he was itching to do it too. It took him four weeks. He'd been holding that in. He finally lets it out. But he's not just saying, I told you so, that, to gratify himself and how he feels. He's also saying, there is weight to what I say. You didn't believe me. Now you see what happens. I'm going to say something else. You better, you better believe it when I say it this time. He's vying for credibility, which probably wasn't a hard sale. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life from among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told, or as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So sailors... You have two different things. Sailors running around, they're trusting in anchors. They're throwing ropes around. They're trusting in equipment. And you have Paul with a different anchor. And he says, this anchor, I belong to him, and I worship him. And these sailors, they're pointing to the waves, and Paul's busy pointing to the God who created the waves and with one word can still those waves. And all the waves in the world couldn't even fill his footprint. That's why you have a different reaction out of him. But it's not easy to do this, is it? It's not easy to do it in the middle of panic, in the middle of pain. It's not easy to do what he's doing, to take courage, telling other people with no courage to take courage, telling people with no hope to take hope, keep hope. But this is what missionaries do. Because God's people, we worship at the high seas. We don't just worship on safe land. We worship in the high seas. So we were created to be. And we're going to find out what makes that happen for us. In verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors 
suspected that they were nearing land. That's because they could hear it. They could hear the breakers, basically, what's going on. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. That's 120 feet. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. That's 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stem, or forgive me, the stern. So the stern is the rear of a ship. They had four anchors. They throw them over the rear of the ship because they could hear the breakers rolling in. What that will do is it will start to push and then aim the ship at the shore, right? So now the boat is pointed towards the island because it's dark. They can't see, but they could hear the breakers rolling in so that when light comes and it turns to day, should be pointed straight at an island. That's the idea anyway. And they prayed for day to come. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, so they went through all that work, and now they're getting second doubt or second thoughts. They're going to just jump ship. They had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, which is the front of ship. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and, what does that say? Giving thanks. Giving thanks. In a very... I guess, difficult situation, giving thanks. To God, in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all, what? What was that word? Encouraged. Why? Why would they be encouraged? You know, it's encouraging to see someone who is in the same typhoon as you worship and give thanks and be at peace and have an anchor dropped in a different direction. It's encouraging. I've got a long list of men and women that I've looked to in the past who've been in hurricanes and have been in tempestuous moments and dangerous situations and watching their heart, watching their, what they say, watching how they handle those around them. It's encouraging. And these sailors are encouraged, and then they ate some food themselves. Verse 37, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now they're getting rid of everything. What you're about to read is a description of them making one last ditch attempt. They're going to do everything to make that boat as light, as steerable, and as fast as possible to get to this island. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the lands, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run this ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow, the front of the ship, stuck and remained immovable, and the stern, the rear of the ship, was being broken up by the surf. So now they're out of time. That boat's not going to be there much longer. They've got to make a move. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim, raise your hand if you could swim, right? That's a fun meeting. To jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. 
And so it was that all, all were brought safely to land. That word peace, that phrase, pieces of the ship, it also can be and has been rendered to be on people of the ship. So get the idea of 276 people that can swim and not swim jumping off of this ship into a pretty angry ocean, right? And they're either grabbing onto something that can float, doing the breaststroke themselves the best they can, right? Or they're holding onto somebody else that is swimming. It is not realistic to think that all of them made it. But they did. It's not likely that all of them would make it to the shore. You know, one guy that we've been using a lot in the study uh, uh, in the book of Acts is Josephus, right? He's a, a Jewish historian. He's been dead on. He's been very helpful for us. Do you know that he himself was in a shipwreck not, not too far from this time? Josephus was as well. He was in a ship of 600 people and only 80 of them to survive. And that was pretty much the ratio that you found back then. Like a small fraction, the strongest, the most fortunate would survive. Everyone else would be wiped out. 276 people got on that ship. Now 276 people are crawling on a shore. Crawling on a shore, laying there, spitting up salt water, coughing, looking around, panicked a little bit, breathing hard, but knowing one thing, God is to be trusted in storms. God is to be trusted in storms. Listen, they know one thing. Corporately, they all agree, God is to be trusted in storms. Hear that. God is to be trusted in storms. They knew a second thing also. They knew that Paul is the president of the island from now on. And every time he says something, we do it, right? <laughs> We're going to start voting some people off the island, but Paul has immunity forever because he was Paul and he was right. These sailors, they tried everything. They emptied all of their innovation, their sailing wisdom, everything. And after their trust and their own knowledge failed, God is to be trusted in storms. It still begs the question, though, if we're honest. It still begs the question, why can't God just make the storm stop? Right? Let's not ignore that. Why doesn't it just cease? I mean, did not God, through the person of Jesus, tell the waves to stop and they stopped? Tell the woman to stop bleeding, she stopped bleeding. Tell the guy not to be blind anymore, he's not blind anymore. Tell the person that can't walk to walk, and now they can walk. Tell the person that's dead to, to be alive, and now they're alive. Why doesn't God just tell our storm to stop, right? You know you ask yourself that question. I think there's three primary reasons. There's probably more. I think there's three primary ones, and that's what I'd like to spend the last part of our time on. I think one, and hold on, if you disagree with this, just hold on. Okay, your storm is an attack from the enemy. Truly an attack from the enemy. He only wants to steal, kill, and destroy from you. That's his goal. It's a pretty simple MO. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. I get that from John 10.10. It's possible that whatever trial you're going through right now is a designed attack from the enemy with the sole purpose of wiping you out and everything that is beautiful around you. It is designed for your failure. Here's the good news for you, though, right? The good news is that there is a leash on how far that enemy is going to be allowed to carry out that attack on your life, a very firm and tight leash. 
The king of creation will allow the enemy to go to some lengths where it serves him, but then no further. And people, they struggle with this, I'm telling you. People struggle with this teaching because it, it creates an image of God that makes him look evil. But read the Bible, friends. Read, even a third grade reading level. Take, take a cursory glance at Job and you will see that this is firmly within God's capacity to do. Right? Where even in the book of Job, God allows the enemy to go this far, but not this far. You can go this far with Job, you're not going to go one step further. Right? And we see it with Paul. We see it with Jesus. We see it all the time. But Luke, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that. I don't know that God would ever let the enemy go this far in my life to destroy me in order to accomplish his goals and look glorified and and you say it's going to be for my good and for his glory, but I don't know that I'm buying that. Right? I would just lead you to the cross. I'm not going to try to talk you out of that. I'm going to let the crucifixion try to talk you out of that, okay? Look at the cross. God allows, God allows lawless men to put their puny, rebellious hands on the son of creation to torture and murder him. Man did it. God allowed it. Think about that. Isaiah 53 it was good. It seemed good to the father to crush his son. But how did he accomplish that? Accomplished it through man, through evil at the time. And this cross was going to display God's glory and benefit God's family. I love looking at Genesis 50. Whenever you get confused on this, you can always look at Genesis 50. It'd be good for you to study on your own time, but it's Joseph talking to his brothers. And he says this very key statement, as for you, you meant evil against me. Evil. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's just a picture. That whole thing's just a picture of what Jesus would do is he actually saved a bigger group of people, even though evil was meant against him. We even see this in Acts 2, 23. We see Peter, as he's preaching to a new church, he says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. This Jesus that God delivered up, you kill. This Jesus that God built the architecture for the cross, you did this on the cross. God allowed it. You did it. And why? Verse 24 of that same passage in Acts, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is good for you, church. It is good for me. It is good for us. If this is hard for you to digest and appropriate, just know that Jesus did this willingly. He willingly tackled a much bigger storm. And why did he do this? Why? why? Because I know our storms are difficult now, but we had a bigger cosmic storm going on. We were guilty and deserving of the wrath of God. And he did this willingly with the joy set before him, tackles a bigger cross for our benefit. And if God will do this with Job, and if God will do this with Paul, and if God will do this with his very own son, the height of his treasure, friends, he will do this with you, and he will do this with me. He will do it with us. You will experience attacks from an enemy, but that enemy will be on a very, very, very tight leash. The alternative, if, if you struggle with that, think of the alternative. The alternative is, I don't know, God falls asleep. He's aloof. He's getting achy in his joints and can't keep up anymore. And every once in a while, the enemy gets one by him, right? Because the enemy's super smart, I guess. And he just gets one by God. 
And we're, we're, we're in a panic and we don't know what to do. Hoping that just God catches up. And that God's not really easy to take courage from. Only manipulating to coerce to make our situation better. You know, the big question for us is, can I trust God in my storm? Can I trust God in my storm? Is he trustworthy to you? Because yes, the bloody cross, it looks like it's way out of control unless it's punctuated at the end with a very empty tomb, which proves that he is in very much control. I'm seeing more and more of the church focused on escaping storms than worshiping the God of the storm, in the storm. More and more, more and more of our church, the church at large is unable to worship God on the high seas. We can only worship God when we're safely planted on solid ground. The second point, and then much shorter, I think the second reason you have a storm in your life and God has not pulled it away from you yet is your storm is a generous act from God's love. He wants you to grow and benefit for your good and for his glory. Therefore, you have a storm, <laughs> right? Typhoon winds, they never felt so generous, did they? The storm, the darkness, but that is how a good father will grow his children sometimes. It's in storms that I find in my life where I rush to and what I trust in. The storms expose how deep my character has really failed. The storms expose where all the weak parts are. It's hard to see that when you're not in a storm, isn't it? It's hard to see it. I'm currently in a pretty nasty storm. I've got a few storms swirling. Some I see coming miles away, you know. And some just came from 7,000 foot up, and I didn't even see it coming, right? But these storms are teaching me. They're leading me a little bit. I'm growing, and I don't like it, and I want them to go away. But God's been good, and I'm growing. You know, me and Mason, this week, we, we drove to Johnson City to speak to a room full of pastors, about 25 or 30 pastors there, on self-care, and I got to teach on self-care and relayed the, the story of, of how I almost burned out and all, it was considered leaving the ministry because of my health and how I just, I broke myself, basically. But one thing that I said, I said a lot, a lot of factoids and sheets and whatever, but the one thing I said that resonated with the most of them, as I got emails and calls all week since then, is when I said the statement, that was God's beauty to me that I burned out. When I burned out, it was God's gift wrapped in pain for me, but it led me to see how far I had gone. It led me to see how unhealthy I was. God loved me that much that he let me burn out. And now he's putting me back together for my good and for his glory. I don't think those men had heard something like that. And I think it helped them to see that God was being generous and good to them in their current storms. This is what Oswald Sanders says on that. It's a poem. I hate poems, so you know it's good if I'm going to read it to you. Uh, but this guy wrote over 40 books, so I'm going to at least look at his poem. He says this in a poem called Spiritual Leadership. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great a bold of a man, that all the world will be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying 
and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God is so good to us. You will weather storms because God loves you. You will weather storms designed in the bosom of God's deep love and out of his most creative deposit for you. Third, and finally, you will have a storm in your life, and possibly do today, to simply display God through you to others around you. It might not have anything to do with you. Right? That's hard to conceive, right? But here we have it. Now almost 300 people are experiencing God's measurable grace to them. And Paul was locked up in all of that, pointing to God the whole time. This is effective missions work. This is powerful. It's powerful to be going through a storm with the people and to be reacting in a Christ-centered way that understands and can rest in grace in that moment. You see, it's the power of the gospel to change us on the inside. We know this. We talk about it all the time. The power of the gospel changes you on the inside. Storms press the inside outside, though, don't they? Storms take what's inside, what the gospel has radically changed, and it puts it out where everybody can see it. And that has high missional capacity. It's a display that people aren't used to seeing. Why is that guy not freaking out? Why is she not freaking out? Why are they not freaking out? You know that's what they thought about Paul. You know he wasn't freaking out. He wasn't whining and you know, complaining and trying to sneak off the boat. He wasn't doing that. What is this guy about? You know, while the world right now lays in a fetal position and they see a group of people, the church, take courage from God and they belong to him and they worship him in their storms, it's a great gospel display. It's one that you really can't manufacture. It only comes by virtue of the storm. Jesus. Jesus goes before us courageously to a bigger storm than our storms to solve our ultimate storm. And he went with a bigger joy and a bigger peace about him, experiencing much more than just winds and darkness. He experienced the wrath, the wrath of God. He wasn't punished for being Jesus. He was punished for being you and being me. He experienced that. He weathered it. He took it. And he did this at the hands of puny, rebellious men, vandals, and yet, and yet, God rendered this moment out of his own brilliance. God rendered this moment out of his deepest grace to you and to me that we would receive something we totally don't deserve. In fact, we deserve the opposite. And we would get grafted into a family we just don't belong in. We get to sit at a table that we have no business being at. That's how brilliant he is. It is for our good. And it is for his glory. Okay, I'm done in two minutes. What do you do? What do you do whenever you find yourself in a storm? I think the first thing we do is very obvious, not innovative, is we pray. You find yourself in prayer. But why? What do you pray about when you're in a storm? I'll tell you one thing you do is thank God for the storms that you've already been through and how they've led you. Be thankful for how God has shaped you and as Oswald Sanders says, has hammered you <laughs> and crushed you. Be thankful for that. Remind your heart that God is to be trusted in storms, right? 
God's to be trusted. Ask God for the grace to endure it well. Ask God for the grace to be a good ambassador as others are looking on. Ask God to give you a fluency to explain the hope that you have in times of pain. Ask God for the Holy Spirit's ability to display and proclaim his glory well. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said something. I don't know if this will be on the screen or not. It says this, when things are so black that they cannot be any darker, we may still pray God is good at the deadlift. When we can do nothing to help ourselves, let us pray, and we can get help from God in everything. Do not think, dear brothers and sisters, that your prayers in time of extremity will prove fruitless. God enables you to pray with faith. Remember, there was never a prayer of faith that failed. Yet, heaven and earth shall pass away, but this truth of God shall never cease to be true, that God is the hearer of prayer if we will but believe in him. God is to be trusted in your storm, whatever it looks like. I think another thing we do is we pray. The second thing we do in our storms, we just rest. We relax. We chill. Right? We don't use gimmicks. We don't use secular little mechanisms to get ourselves to, you know, we breathe in a bag or whatever emotional, you know, equivalent there is to breathing in a bag. We don't have to do that. Why? Because grace has been given to us. Even if your storm, and it is possible that your storm never rolls away, by the way, even if your storm never rolls away, if you are a child of God the Most High, your biggest storm is solved. Your biggest storm is gone. There is no darkness there anymore. That's amazing. <laughs> you, you might actually live the rest of your days with difficulty, and you will with difficulty at your right and your left. One thing you will always know is that there has been a grace to you totally despite you, and it's the beauty of the gospel. The big storm is over. Rest. Rest. Take a breath. Then look around. Pray, take a breath, look around. Because your storm is more about you getting dry and getting safe. Who is watching you? What do your neighbors see? What does your family see? What do those closest to you see? Because in a storm, you're either bear-hugging the closest inanimate object, or you are giving thanks to the one that you worship and to whom you belong. And it does make a difference. And then finally, we celebrate and worship. Go ahead and stand with me. That's what we're going to do now. We celebrate and we worship. Here is the good news for you today. And this is how, because this, the hero of this story is not Paul. The hero of this story is God. Paul is just but a messenger. Paul never quieted any waves, right? God is the quieter of waves, right? Here is the good news for you and the beauty of God. You will be on a better shore. You'll be standing on a better shore. If you love Jesus and you belong to Jesus and you are a Christian, you are a part of this church, you will be standing on a better shore someday. All the darkness will be behind you. All the confusion, all the desperation, all of the working and the toiling, all, all of the starvation, all, all of it will be behind you. You will be in a better place with feet firmly planted around a better king. We can worship. We can celebrate in our storms. We can be people that sing on the high seas. We can be people that are thankful and can rest and sleep when others are toiling because of what God has done. We can worship because God can be trusted in storms. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. Stories much more than just about a shipwreck. 
and about how strong Paul is. This story is about how you engage those who are in torrential, torrential typhoons in the dark, alone, for seasons that go way too long. One day is too long. Two days is way too long. Two weeks is unimaginable. But Father, I know in my storms, I find myself wondering why they're going so long. Okay, God, I've learned what you want me to learn now. Just let up. God, I've already felt it. I get it. Whatever you're trying to do, I think I get it now. I think we could release a little bit. Maybe just a little bit of sunrise. Stop the stupid wind. Something, Father. I mean, I get it. I know that's what my heart says. And I know that's what our hearts are saying here because I know there are storms in this room, Father. Show us, Lord, how you love us and you are to be trusted in storms. It is for our good. It is for your glory. Help us, Father. Speak to us, Lord, as we worship you back, as we worship you in this moment, we respond to you. Help us see our storms just a bit differently. Differently. And Father, I know there are also people in the room that all their life they're throwing weed overboard, throwing anchors overboard, throwing all kinds of stuff overboard, and they've run out of things to throw. They're done. They're pressed out of options. Lord, that you would show them that you are the king of the seas, that you are the king of the storm, and you are also king of the peace. There is better life to be had, and it is at your feet, worshiping you. You are so good to us. We love you incredibly, but help us love you more. We worship you thoroughly, but help us, help us worship you when, when no one else will. When our hearts say, stop it, help us worship you, God. Give us the ability and the Holy Spirit's empowering to before all of creation worship you when it makes no sense. God, you're so good to us. You are our king. You are our hero. We love you and amen. Amen.